Have your Bibles turn to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, you will find it in your pew Bible, page 312. 312. Um, if, as we say each week, if you do not have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. Um, in fact, uh, you can take that Bible home with you. We will get you an even nicer Bible. Uh, but the uh, main thing is you have a copy of God's Word and we read it. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Holy Word. We want to begin in verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 13. The writer of 1 Kings writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels, bearing spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the setting of, seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard of my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I'm not... But I did not believe the reports till I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a great amount of almond wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almond wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also lyres and harps for the singers, no such almond Wood has come or has been seen this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask the same thing every week, that we open up your word and you would transform us. Open our hearts that we may uh, receive your word, our mind that we may understand it, our eyes that we would see your kingdom and your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your message our mouth, that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another in love, and to this lost and dying world which so desperately needs to hear of Jesus. May you open our, our hands and our feet that we would be your servants. We will be obedient to your word. Lord, this is your work. All we can do is but ask and that you give. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Where did it all go wrong? I still remember sitting watching a UofL basketball game with my son, and boy, was it a good one. It was a good one, and you Kentucky fans will agree with me, it was a good one. At least it started out that way because UofL was whooping up on Duke. That's a good day. It doesn't matter who is whooping up on Duke, so long as Duke's getting whooped up on, right? And we all agree on that. If you disagree with me, then you're, you're just wrong, right? I'll find a Bible verse somewhere. Everything was great. Louisville was absolutely destroying them. Louisville was ranked number 16 in the U.S., Duke number two because they bought off the rest. But nevertheless, they, they, they were destroying them. The score, 59 to 36. A little over nine minutes to go. That's a whooping. And here you go, right here, if, if, if my thing will work. Here it is. You see there, on the telly, 
Duke had 0.1% of winning the game. Guess what happened? Duke won the game. Duke spent the next nine minutes on a 35-10 run. They won off a set of free throws. It was devastating. And we're all asking ourselves, where did it all go wrong? Everything was going smoothly and great, and you couldn't ask for a better performance from the boys. Then all of a sudden, they, 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 couldn't, they, they, they couldn't get the ball up the court, alone score. Where did it all go wrong? A year later, then uh, Louisville coach Chris Mack was asked about the game before he had to play Duke again in ACC conference play. And they asked, you know, that, that, have you gone back to watch that game again? He says, no. In my mind, it didn't happen. I've just put it as far behind me as I possibly can. In fact, in all my years of coaching, there is one game that I did not go back to rewatch. Not as a coach, not as a team. We simply put it behind us. And I must say that I, I, I get that. And I can sympathize why the coach would say, you know what? That is a, what, one in a thousand chance of that happening, right? If you look at the statistics, let us just move forward. However, I have found that when we ignore the early signs of when things start to fall apart, we fail to learn from, uh, we, we fail to learn from our mistakes. What it is that we have here in the story is, is the question that the writer is asking the reader to ask. We don't see it initially, but if we, as, as we saw last week, if we just scratch just below the surface, the question we're going to be asking is, where did it all go wrong? You may recall several weeks ago, we looked at the construction and the consecration of the temple, that this is the true climax of the Old Testament, where God comes to dwell with his people. This is the climax. And in chapter 9, we were given hints that maybe things were starting to, to, to fall away. We know how the story of Solomon ends, right? He doesn't finish well. He started the race well. He doesn't finish well. And we're asking, where did it all go wrong? And here in this passage, which on the surface looks like everything's great, in reality, we're starting to see the early signs of him losing it all. Well, I suspect that if you knew anything about Solomon, it would be uh, three stories that you would probably know. One is when he asks for wisdom from God. We saw that earlier. Maybe another one you would know is, is the building and the dedication of the temple, which we spent some time on. And maybe it is this story, the, the visit of the Queen of Sheba that we may be familiar with. Let's just look at it real quick. The first thing we, we see is how Queen of Sheba marvels at the wisdom of Solomon, right? The opening three verses, she uh, shows up with her entourage and, and, and she wants to know, are the rumors true? Right? Are the rumors true that 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 uh, Solomon is as wise as people say he is? In fact, you see it there in verse one, she's come to test him with questions. Your translation may describe these as riddles. Now, what we need to know is this is this is not a battle of wits to see who's the smartest. Rather, what we have is a, a diplomatic meeting between two sovereigns, right? You have the king of Israel, the queen of Sheba. What she wants to know is, is Israel a nation that I can open up trade talks with, right? Trade is vital to a, a nation's economy. Think about how many things that you own and maybe have on your person right now was not made in the state of Kentucky. May not have even been made in the United States of America. 
The bride came elsewhere. How is that possible? Trade. Trade helps every nation um, economically, politically, everything else. And so she's coming to, to see, okay, I've got some questions. I need some answers, right? And so she's just going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at him. And she's amazed by his answers. So we see his wisdom in verses 1 to 3. We see God's blessings upon Israel in verses 4 and 5. Through her investigation of Solomon and his kingdom, she concludes that he is blessed of God. He is blessed of God. Her eyes are not deceiving her. Nothing can explain what she witnesses except the divine blessing of God. In fact, so overwhelmed by what she sees in verse 5, she concludes, or the, the text tells us, it took her breath away. Don't you love that? We still use that phrase, right? When I first met my wife, she couldn't breathe. Just couldn't breathe, I'm telling you. Couldn't breathe. Something's off with her, right? Couldn't breathe. Right? We use that language all the time. And that's the response that we have of Queen of Sheba is that when she gets the end of it, it's as if her breath was taken away. So amazed at, at, at all of what she has witnessed. And that leads in verses 6 to 9 to Solomon's reputation. Now, the queen concludes that all that she had heard was true. Now, what you hear about someone is a reflection of their reputation. Maybe good, maybe bad. It may be full of lies, maybe full of truths. It could be someone heard a lot of good things about you that are all lies. Regardless, it is reputation. And she hears that um, he, his fame is great, his wealth is enormous, his kingdom is well run, so on and, and, and so forth. And so having heard the reputation of Solomon, she wants to see it for herself. Now, this sort of diplomacy was, was unique in ancient world. You, you didn't sing kings after kings, right, unless it was for battles. But here, she's so intrigued by everything she hears about Solomon, she wants to go see it herself. In fact, you see there in verse 7, she, she concludes that, that what I've witnessed is, is, is twice as great as what I was told about it. This is simply overwhelming. The story goes that when Marco Polo returned from uh, his, his time in Asia, uh, he published his most famous book, The Travels of Marco Polo, which you can still read. Go to our library here and read it. It's public domain. You could read it on your uh, tablet even now. Um, but uh, it became a worldwide bestseller. People were intrigued about life in Asia because, because trade had just opened up and people really didn't know that part of the world. The East didn't know the West. The West didn't know the East. But there were a lot of people who thought Marco Polo was making it up. And so he would invite them over for, for dinner there in Italy and, and he would dress as a Chinese peasant. And throughout the dinner, he would then uh, reach into his pockets and pull out expensive rubies and jewels. You see, hearing a story is one thing. Witnessing it and experiencing it is certainly another. And she concludes there in verses 8 and 9 that his nation is, is blessed. In fact, they are happy. Verse 8, they rejoice in the rule of wisdom. Verse 9, they rejoice in the rule of God's loyal love. And finally, they rejoice in the triumph of justice and righteousness. I mean, this is all good news, isn't it? It's all good news. This, this is what we want. It's what we want to see from Solomon. It's what we've been anticipating from Solomon. And then you'll notice that there's the emphasis on trade. We won't spend a lot of time on this, verses 10 to 13. The queen agrees to enter into a trade agreement with Israel. And so in verse 10, she gives Solomon with 120 talents of gold, as well as large spices and precious stones, large shipments of those. And in verses 11 and 12, there's that part about Hiram, but 
regarding Sheba, um, uh, you, or, or verses 13 rather, we see that Solomon gives her whatever it is that she wants, right? This is a trade deal. Uh, she gives, he gives. He receives, she receives. This is a simple uh, international trade deal. And as a result, both are both benefit from this deal. So without a doubt, you read this story and it comes across as a political and economic success. This would have been headline news across CNN and, and all the other uh, news stories about what a great king we have and we're just going to get all that more richer. But what do we do ultimately with this text? Is this just an example of the value of open trade? I, I don't think that is exactly what it is that we are supposed to be getting from this. As we saw in chapter 9, there is a temptation to assume everything here is as it seems. In fact, I would say that if chapter 8 is the climax of the Old Testament, chapter 10 verses 1 to 13 is the peak of the story of Israel. That is to say that if, if you take what Israel was supposed to be, it is all fulfilled right here. God is dwelling permanently with his people, thanks to the temple. God has blessed his people with economic and political abundance, justice, righteousness, and everything else. And that God has secured Israel's borders, giving them rest. Uh, go back over the story of Solomon. God repeatedly says, I have given you rest. And then we see that Israel is finally acting like a light to the nation. Remember what Israel was supposed to be. Israel is where God was to dwell with his people. And as a result, they were to be a light in a dark world. They were to say, look, God dwells among us. We are his people. Come, come see the light. Come see the light. And that, this is what Solomon's doing. The nations are coming to him. In fact, go down to verse 23 to 25 in this chapter. In verse 23, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. You see what's happening here. Because God has blessed Israel and is dwelling among his people, the nations are coming. This is what Israel was supposed to be. This, this is it right here. And so you think this is peak Israel. This is it. The problem is, we got to scratch just below the surface. The way the news cameras are presented, it, we think everything is okay. But something is happening. I want to remind you that this story was written by people who were just returning from captivity. They were looking back of their history and they're asking the question, where did it all go wrong? And, and then they come to this story and they know the history of the kings, right? And, and they come to Solomon. They say, the, the, everything we know of Solomon, man, it was great. It was awesome. God was with his people. The nations were coming to Israel. We were rich. We were safe. We were at rest. We were protected. Justice reigned forth. Everything was everything as we ever wanted it. What went wrong? And so what the writer does, because the Bible is well written, is it shows you the good while simultaneously preparing you for what is about to come. We know how the story of Solomon ends. You could read it in chapter 11. It's bad. And the minute he dies, the nation then splits, never to be reconciled again. And so the writer wants us to ask this question, what went wrong? 
You see, they're not looking back marveling at Solomon's kingdom. They're wondering, how did it all fall apart? Imagine the experience, and maybe you, some of us here have done this, of scrolling through old photos. Maybe it's in a box somewhere. Maybe it's still on your phone. Maybe Facebook reminds you every morning with memories. But you, you're looking at old photos, and there is that old romance you had, and you're wondering, where did it all go wrong? We were so happy in this moment. We were so together on this trip. We, we had planned out our lives at this moment. But, but now looking back, something went wrong. What went wrong? Maybe you're thinking about a business that had to close. Or maybe you had to close and you remember the days when, when, when it was so successful. You thought you were going to expand and, and you were going to achieve all this stuff. And now it's on the brink of collapse. And you're wondering... Where did it all go wrong? What the writers want us to do. Can I show you just a few things in this text to consider? The first is, and I got to get this picture of this little game off. I'm sorry. The first is Solomon was blessed, but he was ungrateful. He was blessed, but he was ungrateful. Gratitude is one of the most important spiritual disciplines you could cultivate in your life. Gratitude. It sounds simple. But it can radically change your life and your worship. In fact, you can't have worship, genuine worship, without gratitude. Maybe I've overlooked it, and you can correct me. You can read this text for yourself. It's odd to me that this Gentile queen from a land that we still debate. Is it Yemen? Is it Ethiopia? Where exactly is she from? She gives glory to God for what Solomon, what he's done through Solomon. But Solomon never does in the text. It's just absence. It's not there. She comes and says, wow, I've never seen anything like this. And he's like, we're going to do this deal or not, lady. He is blessed as, as declared by the queen. But I don't think he's, he's grateful. Ingratitude is a symptom of spiritual sickness. Ingratitude breeds entitlement, which will then stir bitterness, jealousy, envy, Anger, selfishness, and pride. Look, you can spend today and every day of your life complaining about what you think you deserve, what you're entitled to, and what waits your future is misery and loneliness and emptiness. That is a burden you do not need, need to carry. But rather, we had the attitude that, yes, things could be better. Things could be different. And I would do things differently, yes. But I am grateful for the blessings God has given me. And it isn't that I've earned it or I've deserved it or I'm better than anyone, but simply because God is gracious to me. A wife, children, a home, a job, a church that loves me. We have many things to be grateful for. God owes you and I absolutely nothing. He doesn't owe this church anything. He doesn't owe our families anything. He doesn't owe this country anything. All that we have is thanks to the grace of God. And we can either be grateful for it or we can be bitter regardless. And you tell me which one will cultivate a better life. Be careful if you are, if you are convinced that you are the cause of your abundance and success rather than God himself. Solomon was blessed but ungrateful. Here's the second thing is Solomon was successful but unfaithful. He was successful but unfaithful. Now, if you know the story of Israel, you know that Solomon is the third king of Israel. In fact, there's only three united kings of Israel, right? 
I mean, I am so glad nations don't divide the way ancient Israel did. Aren't you? Aren't you glad for that? I certainly am. So, so Solomon is the last of the united kings, right? His son has a brief period of united, then he gets that split because he's a fool. But, but Solomon is the last. He's only the third king. However, Israel had, had, had laid out laws uh, 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 saying what to expect of a king and what is beyond the bounds for a king, right? So let me give you two things that were out of bounds according to Moses. So this is hundreds of years before. The first is he must not acquire horses from Egypt. Now that sounds strange, right? You can read that in Deuteronomy 17, 16. I believe I have it up. You can read it there. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, because Israel was fleeing Egypt because they had enslaved them. And so they're saying, look, don't trust Pharaoh. Remember what he did to your ancestors. Well, look at 1 Kings chapter 10. Go down to verse 28 and 29. 28 and 29. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites, kings of Syria. You notice what he's doing here? He's trading weapons. He's massing an army for himself, and he's trading weapons. And these weapons are coming from Egypt. And, the, and Moses said explicitly, no king of Israel should ever engage in this activity. Now, to Queen of Sheba, this is good politics. Notice, secondly, the king of Israel was not to acquire wives and excessive wealth. You can look here in the next verse, Deuteronomy 17, 17. And I trust you know the story well. If, 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 if we, we talked about this some last week. You can look at chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Kings. And what is it you find? He amasses hundreds of wives and concubines primarily for political purpose, which means he's taken for himself women for his own pleasure and purposes because he doesn't see them as human beings. He sees them as the means of several ends. And he does the same thing with wealth. It is the curse of the prosperity gospel, which stems from Americanism, that tells us that success equals divine favor. We've convinced ourselves of this. If I have a bad day, God's mad at me. If, if, if I'm struggling to pay the bills, God doesn't love me. If things aren't going the way I had planned it out, the way I think they should be, then God has abandoned me. That is a lie of the prosperity gospel, which stems only from America, where we are rich and we are overweight and we, 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 we are miserable as a result. Because we think God owes us something. That is a lie that we must reject. Failure does not mean God has abandoned us, uh, nor does success mean God favors us. Sometimes God is good to the ungodly. And by the way, that is good news because that is our fundamental understanding of the gospel. The God is gracious to those who do not deserve it. Here is Solomon thinking that on the surface, everything is okay. God's not punished me with anything bad. I can bring in the wives. I can bring in the wealth. I can make these trade deals. I can do whatever I want because God's just blessing me. Look at me. God favors everything that I'm doing. We read this and we say, way to go, Solomon. And then you read the text, you realize, wait a minute here. 
There is a pattern of behavior that we've been introduced to that will ruin Solomon and his kingdom. Where did it all go wrong? That's the answer of the text. We can talk about ingratitude, but it really comes from his unfaithfulness. He got comfortable with where he was in his relationship with Christ. And so he started making little compromises here and there. Little small ones as they come along. No one will notice. No one will care. And look, God keeps blessing me. It must be okay. Before long, it all unravels. Unfaithfulness in pursuit of success will ruin us. Can I tell you a third thing? And I know we got to go. A third thing is this. Solomon was great, but unmatched. When we make this passage about how awesome Solomon was, I think we miss the point. The main character here is not the ancient king. It is actually Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The story of Solomon ends in chapter 11. As we said, by chapter 12, the kingdom of Solomon has been divided into north and south. The two sides never reconcile. This is the way that nations and states go. Humans can't get along. Why do we think nations will? unless it is led with wisdom and faithfulness. Now, again, to remind you, the original writers are looking back not to celebrate the history of Israel, but to mourn about how it all came crashing down. And I think this is a pivotal moment. This should have been a triumph of Israel, but it's a sad memory for them. This is a text not about nostalgia, but hope. Nostalgia is like eating junk food. It's okay in moderation. Don't tell my doctor I said that. It's okay in moderation, but too much of it will stir resentment and hopelessness. Sound familiar, America? All we do is live in the past because remember as things were, we know it's not as things are. And we're miserable because of it. Christians do not turn to the past into an idol. We look to God who is doing great things and has the future in, under his control. The Bible takes a picture of Solomon's kingdom and uses it as a picture for us to better see the kingdom and the reign of Christ. I can show you this. In, in, in Psalm 72, stick with me. Psalm, uh, Psalm 72, we looked at this a few uh, Sunday nights ago, actually two Sunday nights ago. Uh, it says, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him. His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. There's the queen of Sheba. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. That is again, 1 Kings chapter 10. Long may he live. May go to Sheba, there she is again, be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. What's interesting is that this is a royal psalm about the inauguration of a king. But if you read it, it's about the inauguration of a true and better king. And what the writer does is it borrows the language of Solomon, who was a great king, but the king that we're anticipating is the one who has come in the ancient past. He has come and he sat upon a throne of a cross and he's risen from the dead and he reigns upon the throne of God right here, right now. Still don't believe me. Isaiah chapter 60, we get the same language. Isaiah chapter 60 
Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall be thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense shall bring good news and praises of the Lord. Do you see a pattern here? What the prophets are saying is what you saw with Solomon was but a picture of the glory you will see with the Messiah. In fact, you'll notice the connection between Sheba and the Magi. Sheba, who brings the nations with her, and what it is that they bring? Gold and frankincense, who proclaim good news and praise to the Lord. That sounds like Christmas, don't you think? It's not an accident. Because the prophets are trying to show you there is a true and better king. And when we get lost into the kingdoms of this world, we find misery and disappointment and, and, and weariness and, and, and restlessness. Rather, we must cling to a true and better king. A true and better king. That our hope isn't here in what I can accomplish or what we will do, but rather what God is doing for his glory and his kingdom, which is above all things. Solomon was great. But he was a match for a kingdom that is here and coming. The queen of Sheba was amazed at Solomon's kingdom. And I'm convinced the day will come. We will stand in awe of Christ's kingdom. Is this not the context by which Jesus claims to be the true and better Solomon? Matthew chapter 12 says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the generations and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Clearly, Jesus has Sheba, the queen of Sheba, in mind. But Jesus says, here's the thing, guys. Someone better than Solomon is right in front of you. Like Solomon, he is all wise. Like Solomon, he rules upon a throne, but his throne is eternal. But unlike Solomon, he saves souls because his own doesn't need to be redeemed. Solomon was a good king, but he was a weak king. And we are in need of a saving king. And we have it in Christ. Several years ago, in 2008, Florida Gators were upset by one point by the Ole Miss Rebels, right? Now, I feel like I have to mention Florida because Kentucky apparently won a game yesterday. I wouldn't know. Against some team down south. I don't remember who it was. The thing about this game is, yes, they lost by one point. It's nothing to, to be bitter about, but Florida, who had just coming off the national championship, where everyone believed they were going undefeated. Florida had never gone undefeated in their whole history. They had won these championships, never gone undefeated. And that was the goal, to go undefeated, win the national championship, everything. And here it is, they, they, they lay an egg. They lose by one point. And following the game, their star quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Tebow, had to give a press conference. You remember the press conference, don't you? Can I read it to you? This is how he ended. I just want to say one thing to the fans and everybody in Gator Nation. I'm sorry. Extremely sorry. We were hoping for an undefeated season. That was my goal. It's something Florida's never done here. But I promise you one thing. A lot of good will come from this. You have never seen any player in the entire country play as hard as I will play the rest of the season. And you will never see someone push the rest of the team as hard as I will push everybody the rest of the season. You will never see a team play harder than we will play the rest of the season. God bless, and he walked off. Well, I think you know the rest of the story, you football fans. They went on to win the rest of their games, eight regular season games, by a nearly combined 300 points. I'm a soccer fan. That sounds like a lot of points, right? 
They finished the season ranked number two. They beat number one Alabama in the SEC championship and will go on to be the number one Oklahoma Sooners who had the then Heisman Trophy winners, their quarterback, in the national title game. One of the things I love about that story is, is Tebow was honest about where it all went wrong. And he vowed to turn the ship around. What about you? What about you? Maybe you're looking at your life and you realize, man, things, things aren't the way I dreamed they would be. Things aren't the way they ought to be. Things aren't the way they could be. Where did it all go wrong? Have you allowed yourselves to be defined by your sin? Even if life seems to be going just fine around you, have you become unfaithful to the King of glory? Where did it all go wrong? But more importantly, what are you going to do about it? Maybe even right now, there are certain temptations and battles you're fighting. You're wondering, how is it that I've come to this point? What are you going to do about it? See, it's one thing to know what went wrong. It's another thing to know what to do with it when it goes wrong. Let me tell you the answer. The answer is quite simple. I want you to believe that Christ has risen from the dead. And he can conquer all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our burdens, all of our fears, all of our doubts. All of it stems from sin. He can conquer it because he is the one who has suffered on our behalf and he has risen, given us victory. I'm going to ask that you repent of all the evil, all the wrong, all, everything, and come to Christ. Be liberated from it all. You can know where it all went wrong, but let me tell you where it all turns around. is the moment we accept Christ as a true and better Solomon, the king of the world, the king above it all, our creator, our redeemer, and our Lord. Where did it all go wrong? More importantly, when will it all start going right? We're going to have this time of invitation. I'm going to ask that you will come and pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Pray for your marriage. Pray for this church. I'm going to ask that also you come in repentance. Believe that Christ risen from the dead and you will repent of your sin. I'm going to ask that you come. I'll be up here. You can come at the altar. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you be so kind as to convict us 